0: Hello and welcome to the Eastman's Predator Pros Podcast. I'm your host Jeff Nimnick. Great to be back on the mic with you guys for another episode. Yeah, hey, I'll tell you what, I'm kind of like a kid in a candy store with this one. Um, as a predator hunter, as a coyote hunter, killing a wolf is like the pinnacle for me. That's that's like the ultimate prize. It's something that uh, I've tried several times. I've been unsuccessful, but sooner or later it's going to happen. But you know, the guests today—that's that's what we're going to really focus on—is wolf hunting. Got Kyler Knelson from Wingmaster Outfitters. He's up out of Northern Alberta, Canada. Um, we're going to talk with him. I'm going to pick his brain about uh, all the things he does in the wolf world. You know, he spends a lot of time all winter long, you know, getting clients on wolves. Um, so I'm excited to, to, to hear all his stories and techniques and things like that. And then also um, have a good friend of mine, Brandon Mason from East Eastman's. Um, I've known Brandon now for the last year, working with them with everything with this podcast, but Brandon. Um, had the opportunity to go hunt with Kyler earlier this fall on a combination black bear waterfowl hunt. So obviously we're all things predator here. So we'll touch on that. Let Brandon talk a little bit about, you know, his experience up there on that hunt. Cause it's, it's a really unique deal, a little bit different than your traditional Canadian, you know, spring black or fall or spring black bear hunt. So I'm um, going to be excited to hear all about that. But before we get going, I um, want to thank you guys for listening, continue to make this the number one podcast out there. If you're looking for any information on myself, want to follow me along on youtube social media accounts see what i have coming up as far as uh, seminar appearances or uh, upcoming class dates uh, for a coyote schools i put on uh, you can find all that information at CoyoteCraze.com, and also you can find my email address on there if you want to send me messages on instagram or or wherever uh, tell me what you think of the podcast um that'd be great you know and if you guys are listening on, on spotify as always you know, if you love what you're listening to, a five-star review goes a long way. So that would be greatly appreciated. But before we get into this podcast, I need to thank the sponsors of this one, which are Onyx Hunt and Swagger Bipods. Now, Onyx, the Onyx Hunt app on my phone is a huge asset to me. It's a huge part of my coyote game. Um, you know, land access is extremely important. You know, I talked about it on a couple podcasts back. And really, in this day and age, Onyx gives you all the tools you need to access more land, find more land um, by using the tools that they have on there that show the landowner names, what's public, what's private. Um, It's just going to give you the tools you need to travel around, able to knock on doors, gives you the opportunity to mark stands and and all kinds of crazy tools like that. And they give you also some options. You know, if you're the type of guy that basically stays in your home state, um, you know, they have a lower level option. You can just buy that map in that state. But if you're the type of guy that travels a little bit, you can get the premium membership which is still really affordable for, for an annual price. And uh, then you can have access to, to multiple states and, and multiple maps when you decide to travel. So, uh, you know, if you're interested in that, you know, if you're not on the Onyx game already, download it on your phone. It's super easy. You can go right from there and, and get a head start on lining up more land access. Then, of course, Swagger, Not last but not least, um, huge part of my coyote game as well. You know, shooting coyotes, putting bullets on target is something I pride myself on. You know, coyote comes in. I don't want them leaving, and uh, you know, being able to put bullets on coyotes consistently is is really all because of the the support system that I use and running that 142 system that Swagger offers. You know, if you follow the Last Stand, you know, Rick runs the QD 42 a lot. I'm um, just kind of his preference. He's kind of a little more old school. You know, likes that. Uh, you know, the the more the shooting stick feel. You know, for me, the 142 is more like the traditional, you know, bipod that's mounted your rifle and that's what I run. So, you know, give them a, sh- give them a shot. If you're looking for a new bipod system, you won't be disappointed. I'll tell you what, it's the holiday season. You're looking to buy something, you know, a gift for somebody, uh, use the promo code coyote craze 25, and that'll get you 25% off your, uh, your swagger order at uh, SwaggerBipods.com. Well, Brandon and Kyler, welcome to the show. Thank you very Thank you much. Sir.
1: Pleasure, pleasure to be here.
0: You know, I'm excited about this one. You know, we've we've talked about wolves and a little bit about bears on this podcast before, but uh, probably not like this. Um, you know, so I'm, let's let's start with Brandon. Um, I introduced you a little bit before, but uh, Brandon, go ahead and introduce yourself. You're with Eastman's, and uh, just kind of let everybody know what you do and, um, you know, background and, and and hunting and things like that.
2: Yeah, sounds good. I think everybody around the office probably say they really don't know what I do here. Um, <laughs> just wandering around the office all day. But uh, no, I've been, uh, you know, since I was, oh man, early teens, probably a big fan of the Eastmans and watching their videos, reading the magazines and all that stuff. And uh, that, and along with a lot of other things, led me to uh, pursue a career in wildlife biology. And I uh, spent a number of years working for uh, North Dakota Game and Fish Department, Mule Deer Foundation. We um, uh, did a little stint with the Forest Service in college. Uh, just kind of a well-rounded background in the in the wildlife and land management arenas. And it's a really long story, so I'm not going to get into it. But um, uh, a series of opportunities opened up doors here at Eastman's and one of those deals where I had to pinch myself that I was actually being offered a job to work at Eastman's Publishing. So I've been here now for 12 years and uh, now the uh, vice president of uh, advertising and marketing and uh, just wear a lot of hats and and have a lot of fun.
0: Nice. I didn't know you worked there that long. You know, I've known you now for for a little over a year, but uh, yeah, I guess I didn't realize you'd been there for 12.
2: Yeah, it's gone fast. I mean, there's some days where it feels like I just got hired yesterday and and other times i <laughs> feels like I've been here my whole life, but um, you know, it's been good the Eastmans treat you well if you work hard for their brand and and I'm passionate about it, so it's easy to do
0: well, I know I've enjoyed working with you guys it's it's been great i'm you know you guys have a a, a different i don't know fan base, I guess you could say you know and the the merger between the the Kyle world and the big game world has has been one that I've enjoyed um you know, but uh you know recently you and I talked a little bit about and actually Todd, you know, Helms, another Eastman guy, um, you know, that you guys went up on this trip, which we're going to get to in a little bit that you were hunting with Kyler. But before we get into that, uh, tell me about your first coyote you ever killed. It's kind of a thing we do here on the podcast. So I got to hear your story on, on how all that went down.
2: You know, I, I don't know if this was the first one I ever killed. I'm sure um, there was probably some before that, but the one that I remember the most was actually, um, you know, I was more of an incidental coyote hunter, where if we're deer hunting, we see a coyote, I'd shoot at it um, once in a while, would would land some lead in one. But usually I was really good <laughs> at educating them. <laughs> and, uh, but one time, um, there's a guy, speaking of Eastman's history, there's a guy that used to help Gordon Eastman film and Mike Eastman film a long time ago. His name was Ed Perotti. And Ed Perotti had helped develop a call that called deer called predators called everything in fact it's called the calls them all and um he took well actually my dad and i took him out to our honey hole in western north dakota where we hunted mule deer and saw a lot of coyotes and the first one that i actually remember was him calling in a coyote and videoing me shooting it and uh Thankfully, I actually made the shot that time, uh, but that's the one that I remember the most. Um, I wasn't super young; I was in college. But I know I, you know, I know I shot coyotes before that, but I just don't have a vivid memory of any of those prior to that. But that one sticks out in my mind, of course, because I was, you know, had a guy who had who worked with the Eastmans, and he was a calling master, and and he wanted to video me shooting a coyote, and I'm like, man, this is pretty cool. So,
0: the calls of all—was this a hand call, electronic call? What the hell was it?
2: I uh, know it was a hand call. It was kind of a, oh, sort of a next step in the evolution from uh, Gordon Eastman had invented a deer call that I still use to this day, um, man, back in the 90s, I think. And uh, and then Ed Perotti had helped him film and, and do some stuff with the call there. And then another guy and Ed started <clears throat> making a different call, called the calls all that was meant to call more than just deer. And you could call turkeys, you can call, um, you know, coyotes, you can call deer, you can call elk, you can call um, birds with it. Um, yeah, it's like Damn. snow geese and stuff. It's pretty crazy. It's not all from the same uh, hand call all from the same little plastic call. Yeah. And I've called uh, most of the things that I mentioned. I've I've called Fox. I've called coyotes. I've called mule deer i've called whitetail i've called i don't know a whole bunch of stuff it's not i wouldn't say it's the easiest to use call in the world but it's it's pretty effective and um that's what he called in that coyote that i shot so Uh
0: they they still make that or no
2: yeah they still make it it's not widely distributed but i i'm i'm assuming they have a website i haven't checked in on them for years but yeah
0: that's interesting Well, let's, let's switch over to Kyler. I think Kyler, I think you might be the first Canadian I've ever had on the podcast. So, so welcome, man.
1: Is, is that right? Eh, well,
0: <laughs> right on <laughs> proud to be here. I had to get the a out of you, you know, that that's the, <laughs> there you go. You know, now you know everybody I knows said. that you're a legit Canadian. <laughs> legit Canadian. I say that and I don't even think about it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, Kyler, give me a little bit of background on yourself. What you do, what you do up there in, in Alberta, and uh, yeah, then we will going Then I want to hear your your first coyote story. Hopefully that uh, that you have one. I'm sure you have probably a hundred of them. But
1: well, cool. I'm uh, maybe not a coyote calling superstar like yourself, or a or a uh, TV guy like uh, <laughs> like Brandon here. But yeah, I'm a hunting outfitter in northern Canada. Been uh, been outfitting now since I was 18 years old. And uh, spent a lot of time in Nunavut, Northwest Territories, and here in Northern Alberta. So I had the pleasure of having Brandon up here uh, this year on a waterfowl and black bear combination hunt. And um, I guess my passion that we're going to talk about is wolves. And I've uh, been doing that a long time. So my first coyote experience is actually not a kill story. It's a little bit different. So I, I bought a 303 British from my neighbor when I was, I think, 11 or 12 years old. probably illegal. I don't know. Didn't know all the details <laughs> at that time. But uh, I bought this peep-sided 303 British, and um, my dad had bought me an open-read Will Primo's call from some little mom-pop outdoor store. And I was so proud of this little call, and i have been playing around with it and calling up the coyotes at night when they were howling. And I went and set up, um this one summer night i think it was like june or july early july and uh i set up on this little creek bottom that's on our property and i heard some coyotes yipping down there and uh so i backed up against this little tree and and laid this 303 british across my lap and started calling and it wasn't two minutes and these two little pups popped out of this creek bottom and they're just wee itty bitty little things. <laughs> and they and they had no idea where I was. And uh and they were just just super curious and they're messing around and playing and kind of working their way towards me. And I was dressed in head to toe in this uh, leafy camel gear that I had just bought um with allowance money or whatever I had at the time. And uh, and these little pups they come up to about 50 yards and the the adult one of the adults popped out of the creek bottom and saw me instantly and she started yipping and yapping and trying to tell these pups not to not to come towards me but they ended up working their way up all the way up and didn't really know what i was and they smelled the end of my gun barrel oh wow that close and i was like you know these are two cute little coyotes And so I never, I never pulled the trigger on them, but that's a coyote memory that sticks out in my mind. It was pretty cool.
0: Yeah. That's, that's unique. You know, hand calling is a thing that's kind of going away, you know, like just with the advancements of e-calls and everything else, you know, and so you don't get those type of stories hardly anymore because, you know, back in the day, using a hand call, the coyotes are hunting you, they're coming right to you. And you'd hear all kinds of stories like that of guys dang near poking them with their gun barrels or coyotes jumping over their feet, you know, and that's, that's one thing that, uh, that the e-call doesn't give us, you know, when you're setting that e-call out there, you kind of lose that, uh, some of those cool stories like that.
1: You know, I kind of actually prefer the hand call in most scenarios, especially when I'm calling in the wintertime and it's super cold. These, uh, the e-calls tend to freeze up when it gets nasty cold. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and I like, I don't know, I just like the hand calls. It's super simple and uh, old school.
0: One thing that came to mind, you know, that we probably won't get into later, but I wanted wanted to talk about it real quick now, since we're talking about coyotes in, in Canada, real quick, run me through what, what are the regulations in Alberta as far as coyotes go when it comes to like non-residents?
1: Um, it's, it's a pretty simple process. It's a $28 non-resident license and there is no limit to the number of coyotes or wolves you can shoot. Now you have to be with a, uh, registered outfitter or guide, um, in order to kill coyotes or wolves, but on, on public land or private land, there's no limit.
0: Um, so now, is it Saskatchewan that you can go up there by yourself if, like, a, a an American came up there and hunted? Or do they need an outfit or two?
1: You know, I'm not sure, actually, to tell you the truth, but the um, the regs in Saskatchewan. I know you can waterfowl hunt in Alberta and Saskatchewan, probably Manitoba as well, without uh, an outfitter or guide. But for any big game hunting, um, you have to use an outfitter or guide in Alberta. It's kind of weird about the
0: coyotes, you know. I've always, I've had some guys that have went up there, you know, coyote hunting, and you know, I've been with outfitters and things like. And I always thought that was just strange. Like, I can see if it were moose and bear and some of that big stuff, but I've always wondered why. I want, uh, you know, is there something about the just like why does a non-resident have to have an outfitter to shoot coyotes? Any any story
1: behind that? You know, I think it comes down to the money at the end of the day, and I think it has. Partly to do with the, uh, with the outfitting industry, wanting to make money for the outfitters. And, uh, and I think they put that regulation in a long time ago, um, just to, just to boost the outfitting industry in Alberta. Um, that's the only reason I can see.
0: That makes sense. You know, I'm sure a lot of people used to watch or or have watched Randy Anderson's videos, you know, over the years, and he used to always go up and hunt with woolly. Was that, was that in Alberta? Have you, I'm sure you've watched those or seen those. A lot of it was in Alberta,
1: yeah. But he was on in, in the like the southern Alberta country. There is way more coyotes in that southern Alberta uh, end of the province as up here. I've got I've got the wolves; those guys got the coyotes.
0: Why is that? Just the just the better weather? I mean, where it's not such deep snow and things like that, they just thrive a little bit better. More ag? What what would be the reason? A lot more ag.
1: A lot more ag land, and I think that's the biggest thing. There's a lot more cattle farmers down there. There's a lot more ag land. This is all big bush country. I mean, there's some agriculture around here, but there's not nearly as much egg land as there's uh, down south. And yeah, and I think huge. those just thrive a lot more in that egg land. There's a lot more. Uh, oh yeah. I don't know mice. Mines, are, mice. There's more grouse. Yeah. Yeah. A lot more feed for them. So. Huh. Uh, yeah.
0: That's, that's that's interesting. That's interesting. How long ago did you get started with uh with Wingmasters Outfitting? I was uh, I was eighteen
1: when we bought our first um, outfitting tags. So we started with hunting waterfowl and black bears. So I was almost 19 when, uh, when we bought our first, uh, when I got my outfitting license, I guess, from Alberta professional outfitter society. And I guess been doing it ever since. So I started in Alberta, did that till I was 21 kind of struggled. Nobody in my family was an outfitter. Nobody was a guide. i started from ground zero and with no contacts, and so try to go to these sport shows and book a few hunters, and being an 18, 19, 20-year-old kid, uh, it was pretty tough, but we made it work and, uh, and had some decent contacts. Um, and then a guy in the Northwest Territories by the name of Boyd Warner, um, that's another, it's a long story how we, how we uh, got to meet each other, But we had a mutual friend and he found out that we were doing this, uh, this outfitting thing. And he's an outfitter in Nunavut, the Northwest Territories. And he really needed to somebody with some young blood and energy to come on board and help him with his, uh, the Northwest Territories operation. So he asked if I wanted to, well, first actually, we, we partnered on a moose hunting deal. So we did a couple of moose hunts one year and we did well and he loved it. And he said, I need a partner. I need you to come on board and buy half my company. I didn't have 20 bucks in the bank account, so I had not, no really good way to buy the company. But we worked out a deal, and uh, and so I've been in the Nunavut and the Northwest Territories and in caribou, ox, grizzly bear, the odd polar bear, and uh, especially the Arctic wolves uh, since I was 21. Nice. So that's 11 years now.
0: Now, so do you bounce back and forth then from up there? I do. Back, I do. Back and forth?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Nunavut Northwest Territories isn't that far from me. I'm right on the northern tip of Alberta here. Um, so, and then I've got the airplanes. And so, most of the time, I'm just jumping in the airplane and, and going back and forth.
0: Nice. Excellent. Well, you know, one of the hunts you offer is this, is this black bear waterfowl combo, which was very interesting to me because I, I've talked to obviously a hundred guys that have been up to Canada shooting black bears. And it seems like you're sitting kind of over bait piles and in a tree stand or in a blind as kind of the traditional way to do it. But I'll let, you know, kind of you and Brandon talk a little bit about, you know, your experience doing this because it's something I never really heard of kind of how you guys set up and how you, how you run that hunt.
2: Floor's all yours, Brandon. (laughs) Well, I, up until this year, I hadn't heard of that type of a combination hunt either and when the opportunity came up for us to go up with Wingmaster Outfitting and hunt with them, and I was asked, uh, Todd Helms and I were asked in the office if we wanted to go, and I was like, "Is this a trick question?" I don't, of course, I want to go. <laughs> and uh, and then we we road tripped up there, it took us just under twenty hours uh, between two days of driving to get up there. And I and that time of year was in early September. Um, around here at Eastman's, you can imagine with filming deer hunts elk hunts antelope hunts and whatever else comes up um we're pretty short on camera people and over the last few years my my son is now 17 he's learned how to run the camera and he's fairly good at it and uh so we we uh i pulled him out of school and we road tripped up there and he ran the camera for us which is pretty fun uh, pull him out of school is easy because i'm the uh, administrator of the homeschool oh. at <laughs> our house and so you know, i pulled two strings, <laughs> we pulled it off um But anyway, we got up there and and just had a blast. And um, I've, like I said, I've never heard of a combination waterfowl uh, bear hunt in my life. And we just went up there and slayed the the geese and uh, 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 Kyler's guides are just top notch and really fun to be around. And then midday, you kind of reorganize and maybe catch a nap if you're lucky. And because the days are pretty long, you're getting up at like 3.30 to go uh, sit in the the goose blind and then um, get something to eat catch a nap, and in my case it was backing up memory cards and charging camera batteries for the evening uh for the evening hunt and then we would go out and spot and stock uh giant northern alberta black bear so it was it was epic it was honestly i've since i've been at the eastman's and even before that i've been you know pretty blessed to to do some really cool hunts and trips in my life and and todd helms and i both agree that this was the funnest hunt we've ever been on in our lives um it was just a blast and that partially the hunting was really good uh and then wingmaster outfitting you know kyler and his crew are just so hospitable and the the little town that they're near was the friendliest town i've ever been in in my life um and i i'm hopeful that i can go back up there you know in the near future it was just it was a blast
0: well you know me personally i'm not gonna lie i've heard of these a million black bear hunt stories and to me it sounded boring you know like if you just, I guess if you really wanted to kill sitting in a, a tree stand over a bait barrel or something like that, I'm like, ah, I don't know if I really want to kill a black bear that bad, but the spot and stock thing for me, that would be where it's at. I mean, is, I mean, Kyler, yeah. you walk us through that. I mean, obviously you, I mean, you must've felt the same way when you set up this package deal. Is it just the, is it just the ease of the hunt where you can, is that the style of hunting you prefer more? Or is it just something you wanted to be a little bit different in, in, the, in the hunt you offered?
1: A bit of all three, actually. I, see, I grew up hunting black bears this way. And, and to me, it was just normal. And if you want to go shoot a black bear in the first couple of weeks of September is the best time to do it. You grab a rifle, you walk down any field edge that's next to any bushland at all, and you're going to see black bears. Especially if that's an oak field or a pea field, something like that. There's, there's going to be bears in there. And so we, we did it all the time. We'd grab our bows or a rifle and uh, sneak down the field edge. Oh, there's a bear. And they're busy feeding. You can get within bow range fairly easily. They pick their head up. Always oh, a small bear. And he would run off in the trees while you'd go another quarter mile, a few hundred yards. Oh, there's another bear. Pops his head up. Dang, that's a pretty good bear. And we get in bow range, whack him. Yep, he's a good bear. Throw a tag on. And we we get two tags right, and uh, and we keep going. Oh, there's another good bear. Shoot him. Go back. Skin both of them. And uh, and that was our evenings. And, and we we used to love doing that. Well, actually, I still love doing that. But who am I kidding?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, <laughs> and and then we got into this waterfowl thing, and we love killing birds. That's what I grew up doing. I grew up shooting waterfowl, so that's I'm a waterfowler at heart. And then. We got these black bear tags, and these these bird hunters are coming in, and we're shooting these bear these birds, and we're getting tagged out in the morning or or uh, limited out in the mornings, so we can't go shoot birds in the evenings because we're 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 limited out. So what can we do? Well, shucks, guys, I've got these bear tags. You guys want to go shoot a bear? And they were and everybody's like, yeah, of course, we want <laughs> to go course, shoot a bear.
0: Yeah.
1: So we go do these hunts and and guys are over the moon and this is just awesome and it fits well together we go shoot birds in the mornings come back have a great big huge brunch breakfast thing grab a nap then go kill bears in the evenings and and everybody just loved it and so we started advertising and marketing it a little bit and it it took off but I I ended up getting too busy with uh, with the caribou and the musk ox and all this stuff it kind of overlapped these seasons so I didn't put a whole bunch of effort in until this last year i lost my caribou tags last summer and i thought you know i i need to i need to run a few more of these black bear waterfowl combos because they're just so much fun and then uh brandon and todd came up and
2: we had a good time
1: and uh yeah i've got a couple a couple weeks of these hunts booked ready for next year so
2: yeah and it's crazy the volume of bears i mean when kyler's saying that you just keep stalking every few hundred yards and there's another bear he's not exaggerating in fact we were i think it was the first night kyler i can't remember we were We were on cloud nine. I think we'd seen half a dozen bears or something. And, and Tyler, (laughs) we were eating together that night said, man, I'm really sorry that the bear action has been so slow. We're like, slow. What are you talking about? We saw half a dozen (laughs) of them tonight. And uh, he said, well, you should be seeing 20 a night. Like, are you kidding me? And, uh, and yeah, we both uh, stuck good bears with, with archery equipment. And uh, if I wouldn't have been stubborn to do it, archery only, I could have shot an absolute, giant boar with my rifle. Um, and I still almost got one of my bow. bows at full draw 25 yards and just couldn't get a shot through the cover. But, um, yeah, the, 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 the whole experience is just epic. It, it's, it's fantastic.
0: So walk me through, you know, kind of a weird question, but, you know, I think a lot of guys obviously have the dream of going North, you know, to hunt that never have, but I think a lot of guys are like, man, it seems like a real pain in the ass crossing the border. And, And getting up there i mean brandon walk me through your experience driving up there crossing the border and then kyler you know you can kind of touch on maybe how a lot of your clients get up there and 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 what it's like if they fly or or whatever
2: uh yeah it's uh i mean if this would have been my first trip to canada i would have been uh pretty nervous and intimidated by it i think because i hear those same horror stories and and to be true if you don't have your ducks in a row when you're going up there across the border and depending on the border crossing agent that's working that day and depending on the port of entry that you're going through and on and on, um, they can make your life a living hell. I mean, I've been through uh, the border a couple of times in different crossings where they treated me like I was a criminal and uh, like I was going to prison. In fact, one guy threatened that. In fact, is when I was coming back from Canada to the US I would have the proper permit to show that I would carried that gun across the border and was bringing it back. And they threatened to throw me in prison. And I think they do that to intimidate you a little bit and to see how dishonest you are.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
2: uh, But through all those learning experiences, and the first time I ever traveled to Canada, I was with Guy Eastman, and he's done that so many times. He can do it in his sleep. And so that helped relieve some of the anxiety. He told me what to prepare for. But so by the time I, I was going on this trip, you know, I've been up there half a dozen times and in uh, and, and Todd, he's from Northern Michigan and he used to go up to Canada all the time as a kid. I mean, it was just part of the way of life. So he, he wasn't green to it either. And so when we get to the border crossing, we've got our firearm paperwork for Canada. Um, we had already done our paperwork to get back to the United States, obviously, because I learned that painful learning experience a few years ago. Uh, when you don't have that, what happens? Um, we had, and now they're they're using. I think they're still using. It's called the Arrive Can app. It's like a app where you can load all your documents on there, and you just show it to the border crossing. You got all your your paperwork and everything ready to go, and they know you're legit, and and just have you sign a couple forms and off you go. So this time it was actually the easiest uh, border crossing that I've ever gone across, it. and it's not because. It was a different spot. I've gone through this one before, but um, I think we were just so dialed in our paperwork, and we had everything so ready. And the border crossing people could tell that, and they're like, "Okay, this isn't these people's first rodeo. They're dialed in. They're good to go." And we had uh, the outfitters' information, which you have to have that too to get across, because you're you know you have to prove that you're not just some renegade <laughs> trying to do some diy hunt that's illegal um and it, so it's just you know getting your ducks in a row having the paperwork and uh you know being polite to, to the people there you don't know what kind of day they're having of course and uh and even if there it is a border crossing person that's kind of power tripping which i swear half of them are like relatives of barney fife that you know they just <laughs> they got a badge and they and they're not afraid to use it and uh but uh, you know the, but there's also a lot of good people and and this time we had a some really good people. They were pretty lighthearted. And, and, and again, they could tell that we were prepared. We had everything on the up and up and, uh, we, you know, scooted across really pretty easily. So,
0: so back me up here, let's get more specific on this paperwork. Cause I'm sure people are listening. It's like, well, yeah, I, I, I'm curious about this. So obviously first off you need a passport, right?
2: Correct. You need a okay. passport. Passport's the very first
0: thing you need. So then this other paperwork you talked about, this firearm paperwork, walk me through that.
2: Yeah. There's a, there's a Canadian form that you have to fill out that details, and I forget the name of the form, but it's really easy to find online. And, and Tyler probably remembers it off the top of his head, but there's a form that um, you fill out all your information and all the detailed information on the firearm, the type of firearm it is, a serial number, the the brand, the model, all that. And and, and then obviously that's got to match what you're bringing across. And, they'll, and sometimes they'll double check it. And sometimes they'll just look at your paperwork and see that you're thorough and go, okay, you're good to go. They won't even look at your gun. It really depends on the on the border agent, but um, in going back to the the passport real quick, too, if you're a United States citizen and if you're going across the border to Mexico or to Canada, you have to either have a passport or a passport card and a passport card is just for basically land travel internationally in north america so you can get across the border you don't have to have a full-on passport they're quicker to get there. they don't last as long you can't go overseas you can't fly with them um meaning fly across the waters with them um but like my my wife and, and son went to mexico a few years ago and they just had a passport card and it was super quick and easy to get and i think that's actually what todd helms took i'm not I can't remember for sure if he had a passport card or passport, but, and I've got a passport that it's been good for a number of years and it's still good for a while. So, um, you know, passports number one and the firearms permit, and then, um, if you're going hunting, you have to have some sort of a proof of communication contract license whatever from the outfitter which we did with kyler we had a contract that he sends to his clients so we fill out and we show at the border saying this is who we're going with this is where they're located and that way if something goes down they can contact the outfitter and double check that your story is correct
0: and then you said there was a, a form that you needed to have ahead of time for the way back
2: Yeah, that is a United States declaration form. It's not necessarily a specifically a a firearms form, but it's generally what it's used for for people in our situation. So you have to declare what you're taking across the border and what you're bringing back. So we declared like our optics, um, because part of it is too, they want to make sure you're not going over there and selling them and uh, making money illegally. (laughs) Excuse me. So we declared... Uh, first and foremost, our firearms and have serial numbers and everything, and the am, ammunition that we're taking across. And then we can prove, you know, what we used up there and what we're bringing back. And again, if you have those forms and, you, and you're coming across, it's no problem. Then, if you're bringing animals across, you have to have your hunting license, you know, in, in your tags, and and a lot of times they'll ask you to open up your cooler or or check out your antlers or whatever you're transporting across, and uh, and see that you're legit and just double check that you know you're not a poacher or whatever. This year, the avian flu and all that stuff. Uh, right when we were going across the border, the United States Fish and Wildlife Service put a moratorium on bringing back birds across the border. That you killed, and well, I, I can kind of see that. I guess the upland game, migratory game. I thought it was kind of funny because the birds are going to migrate. And get <laughs> yeah, here they're anyway. going to be
0: coming down but, here anyway, right?
2: In uh, fact, even the border crossing people thought that was hysterical. <laughs> but uh, so we we actually donated the meat. Uh, the birds when we were up there and kyler has resources to do that so that hunters can donate the meat to those that need it um up in up in their area so um it was unfortunate we couldn't bring anything back we've shot some just phenomenal speck of um that i was hoping to get mounted and bring back but, yeah yeah uh, we weren't able to do that so
0: so they're not crazy i mean the to me it's like just not knowing what to do you know i mean what but i think if you knew exactly what you needed to have filled out it doesn't seem like it's that that terrible of a process.
2: No, it's not. And there's websites, you know, the, the, um, travel Canada website actually details it pretty well. And they, there's a questionnaire on there where you can answer what you're planning to do there. And it'll direct you to the right page on what you need to bring with you, what you can and cannot bring with you. If you're allowed to go, uh, depending on what your intent is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's gotten, you know, the, in September, they actually loosened up a lot of that stuff what it's been over the last two years because of COVID and all the politics around that and everything. Um, it's gotten a little more friendly to travel across the border again, which is nice.
0: So Kyler, the, the process of somebody flies into Canada, like if they wanted to fly up to, to where you're at or as close as they can to where you're at, what, what's that process like flying into Canada?
1: It's pretty similar. Most of the paperwork is similar. Um, the, the firearm declaration forms is the same one that you'd fill it as if you were driving. Um, just bring that with you to the airport, uh, fill it out in triplicate, but don't sign it until you get to the airport in front of the uh, the customs agent. And then uh, you can sign it there. But all the other paperwork, it's, it's all the same. And make sure that you've got your, uh, your contract or your proof of communication with the outfitter. Um, I've had it a few times where guys haven't brought their contracts with them. They're at the border, they get held up and then my phone rings and it's a customs agent pay hey, such and such is at the border. Uh, are they hunting with you? And I'll say, yep, yeah, they are. Uh, here's a copy of their contract. And, uh, and so the more, basically the more paperwork that you have, the more correspondence that you can bring with you from your outfitter, the better and the easier it's going to be. So it's a pretty straightforward process.
0: Now firearm stuff, obviously you can't bring ARs. You can't bring suppressors. Um, <laughs> Any, other, no no, hand any other restrictions? No handguns. No
1: gun. hand yeah, any, any semi-automatic rifle can only hold uh, a maximum of five rounds in the magazine. Um, just just a bunch of, of dumb rules, really. Yeah. Um, a- ARs, obviously, like you said, are illegal. No handguns, no suppressors. Um, but just your regular hunting rifles um, are, are going to be fine.
0: Well, that puts me out of the equation. I don't go anywhere without my suppressed <laughs> AR, so. <laughs> uh, I might have to break out a bolt gun one of these days if I decided to cross the border, you know?
1: You know, speaking of bolt guns, I, I tried these, uh, these straight pole rifles the other day. Man, are they awesome. I just bought one. I'm not sure what you guys are using, but this uh, the Savage straight pole uh, Predator, 10-round mag, shoot, that thing is fast.
0: I don't even know what you're talking yeah. about. What do, you, what do you mean a straight pull?
1: Yeah. It's, you don't like the blazer rifle. Like the bolt doesn't go lift. You don't lift the bolt up and then back and then forward, and then back down. It's just straight back and
2: straight forward. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I was actually running one of those this year too. On um, When we got back uh, to the States and I had an antelope hunt and I shot, in fact, Savage just came out with a brand new one here in October called the mountain hunter straight pole and it's got a proof barrel and they lightened up their their uh first generation um straight poles and and they still have the first generation too but they lighten them up and have this other option and yeah they're fast and just unbelievably accurate yeah that's what i found too i just picked one up and uh, i'm
1: loving it so far
0: so it's kind of like the next best option since you can't have a semi-auto exactly yeah Yeah.
1: well we can have a semi-auto we, well, but like a like a like a, a,
0: a real semi-auto. Come on, Kyler. I mean,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. We we have a lot of uh, AR variations and lookalikes here in Canada. So I've I, I've got a bunch of semi-autos that are not true ARs, but just the Canadian legal version of an AR piece.
0: Can you Can you guys even as residents even have suppressors or not?
1: No, no, not at all. Oh man, no. that's a. Yeah. Uh, that's a bad deal getting caught with a suppressor.
0: See, that's crazy. You know, you can go overseas to like South Africa and even Europe, I believe. And it's like, you could walk into gun shops and just buy them. You know, yeah, it's and, just, and I, I, you know, I, Canada to me kind of parallels maybe some of that East, you know, European countries and even maybe South Africa to a certain extent, you know, politically and you know, how, you know, how everything works. So that's always surprised me that you couldn't have them.
1: Yeah. It should be mandatory in my opinion.
0: Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> well let, let's get into the main event here let's let's get into the wolf hunting that's what everybody's probably wanting to listen or, or that came to this podcast to listen about so kyler walk me through you know how did you get started with the wolf game obviously they you've probably been around them ever since you started hunting and you've heard stories and you saw wolves and things like that but you know really what was the first step you took to to actually start hunting them
1: you know i i kind of uh took the wolf for granted here i didn't see it as a a profitable game species to hunt. And I just knew they were always a problem and everybody had issues with wolves, either killing cattle or killing wildlife everywhere. And you know, most deer populations, they, they uh, went up and down depending on what the wolf populations did. And so in 2011, uh, I, I'd been wolf hunting a little bit. I, I killed a few wolves prior to that. But in 2011, I bought 160 acre property um that butts up to about i don't know probably five six thousand square miles of of crown land and i had a whole bunch of deer there and but we had a really bad winter and i started feeding these deer because i I realized these deer are going to starve if they don't uh, if they don't get fed and then the wolves moved in and absolutely liberated all these deer And I found 26 wolf killed deer on my 160 acres and an additional 46 in the surrounding area. And I thought, boy, these wolves are hard to lose deer. And, um, so we we ended up losing like 80% of our deer population that winter. Wolf numbers exploded. And I'm like, man, somebody has got to do something. And and there's, there really was nobody around that was actively trapping wolves in large numbers or you're hunting wolves in large numbers. And, um, I thought this is never gonna to happen to me again. I bought this property. I wanna live here. I want to have all these ungulates and wildlife in the area. And so I, I got a little bit mad at him, I guess. And um, started researching the snaring and trapping and trial and error, took a trapping course and this and that. And uh, I found a trapping partner that had the same interests. And we started really putting the herd on them in, in our area and then about uh, four or five years later, um, our, our county put on a bounty on these wolves because wolf numbers are still kind of out of control. And to give you an idea of how many wolves there were in the area, well, there's still a whole bunch, but they allotted $100,000 to this wolf uh, bounty program. And the, it was $200 per head or per wolf. And when these $100,000 was gone, they were going to end the wolf program. Well, we did that in three years. That's oh, five hundred. That's five hundred wolves that came wow. out of our that came out of our county in three years, and it it really. I mean, it, it put a dent in them, but it it didn't really knock them back like I'd expected. Um, so, and, and we, my trapping partner and I, we killed thirty three percent of all those wolves killed. So that was kind of cool. And
0: you're making bank, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, they paid. The, yeah, the county paid my property tax bill there for a few <laughs> years. So. <laughs> so, but but during that, I realized, boy, there's a lot of people that like the wolf hunt, and I started experimenting with uh, with baits and doing this and that, and um, I found out sharks wolf hunts are actually fairly easy to sell, and I start, I, I continually kept improving on my hunts and on my success rates and trying this and trying that. And, um, yeah, now shoot, I think I'm taking 30 wolf hunters down here and then another 22 wolf hunters in Northwest territories. So the oh. last, last year was fairly similar. We ended up, uh, we ended last season, um, killing 50. Oh, what was it? 54 wolves. I think is what we ended up with. So
0: that's Heck yeah, so so basically, if if you're if you're wolf hunting, I mean, some guys say, well, why aren't you out there trying to actively hunt them? You know, stock them, call them, whatever. Why why is it that the baiting is is such a more effective technique? Is is it because of the just the train is extremely hard to hunt? That the wolves travel so much, and you just you got to be in the right spot at the right time to maybe try to call them or spot and stock? Is yeah, you know, walk me through the mentality of of the baiting versus trying to hunt them other ways
1: it's it's a bit of both um see the wolf learns so fast and from my experience trying to call wolves and and i've done it i've, I've called in uh plenty of wolves over over the years but they learn so quickly and <laughs> you can call them in once maybe a second time but if you screw up on on their your first setup
0: you, <laughs> calling that wolf in again is next to impossible and uh, so very similar to coyotes. I mean that's that's kind of the same situation guys run into with coyotes, you know. Okay, except there's a lot more coyotes, you know, so it's easy to come on the dumb coyotes. one next to them, you know.
1: Yeah, and they cover <laughs> such a huge a huge territory, so you might put in 10 setups before you get within earshot of a wolf. For sure, yeah. And and with the bait program, I mean those wolves they live and hang out around these bait sites and they're gonna follow their stomach all the time. And I I've found that these wolves around these Bait sites live in a lot smaller territory than they do if there's no bait around. Um, so let's, let's, uh, the wolves behind my house, for an example, um, when I'm not baiting there, they're on about a two week cycle and they'll come through there about every 12 to 14 days and just kill a deer or move on and keep going, keep doing their cycle. If I've got a bait pile behind my house, they're going to be on that bait pile every not every night but every second night every third night and they they basically live there and then I can put another bait pile seven miles away and have a different set of wolves that are on that bait pile every second night every third night and stay there so it it it's logistically it's a lot easier for me to hunt wolves over bait than it is to go around and call everywhere oh you bet um, yeah because I can I can have I've got Shoot, I don't know what fifteen bait sites on the go right now last year, all that about a hundred thousand pounds of bait, and where these wolves are eating bait, they're not killing deer, and so my yeah so main what goal if, was,
0: if for you to for you to travel to fourteen bait sites what's that what's a round trip they're taking you uh, two days. Wise? yeah, I can't do it in one day, so Or kilometers, I, I, I guess I should say huh
1: well miles wise <laughs> i I'd probably do. Oh, probably seven or 800 kilometers between all these bait sites.
0: So that's, so that's scattered that, out uh, there. A lo- I mean, it's just not a bait pile every, like you said, it is seven, eight, 10 miles in between each bait pile kind of a deal.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. At minimum. Yeah. And and some of my bait sites from the North end to the South end is probably uh, 140 miles.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Now is this, now to get to these, is it, are you on like snow, snow machines? Is it, is it usually road access where you can drive your pickup, you know? Interesting story.
1: That. Interesting story for you. So when I started baiting wolves and, and hunting wolves over bait, I thought, you know, I've, I've got to put these bait sites out way out in the middle of nowhere where these wolves have no hunting pressure. There's they they're not used to any humans and all this stuff. And, uh, and they'll be easier to kill because they're come out in daylight. Right. Yeah. Cause we're not allowed to shoot at night here. And so I have to try and pull these wolves out in daylight. So I, I'd snowmobile in uh, an hour, hour and a half, two hours into the bush to set these the bait sites up. Well, that, that's a big effort to if you're doing running what I was doing, running about 10 bait sites like that. That takes a lot of time, pretty hard on the snowmobiles and hard on equipment. And I found that these wolves are so hard to kill because they're not used to the sound of a snowmobile. They're not used to uh, human scent at all. And so i put a... But I'd freshen up a bait site. Well, it'd take three days before the wolves would hit it because my, my human scent was there, right? And there's I don't care what anybody says, you cannot hide your human scent. There, there's no way, not from a wolf. Hey
0: guys, sorry to interrupt the podcast, but I need to take a second to tell you a little bit about six hour optics and specifically the Sierra Six lineup of rifle scopes that I'm currently running. Built upon the Sierra 3 award winning technology and the Sig Sauer BDX ballistic data exchange technology, the Sierra 6 family of rifle scopes provides the hunter or marksman with an intelligent auto holdover specific to their ballistics, target, and environment. Pairing a Sierra 6 rifle scope to a BDX equipped rangefinder allows users to bring the capability of applied ballistics into the field without the need for a mobile device. Now, to put that more simply, if you're looking for a way to shoot coyotes, especially the ones that hang up out there 3 4 500 yards and don't want to come in any closer which we all know happens. You know, this system will allow you to consistently put bullets on target at those ranges. So, if you're in the market for a new rifle scope or even a new rangefinder, visit sigsauer.com. Now, back to the podcast.
1: And so I I set one bait site on the farmland, thinking well if my snowmobile breaks down or whatever, I still got a truck access bait that we can hunt. Well, we started killing wolves on this bait site that was right next to the farmland. And all these other bait sites, we, were, we weren't killing stuff. And so I set a second farmland bait. Well, then the two farmland baits outproduced the eight bush baits that I had. Oh, kid. I'm like, dude, that's so much easier to bait these on the farmland and I can get to them with a truck. I'm like, wow. And so I ended up pulling all my bush baits and setting up around the fringe of the farmland. Because those wolves, they're used to the sound of a truck door slam, the sound of a vehicle going down the highway inside of a barbed wire fence, some some human scent. And it, it feels weird to sit in an area where you can, you can hear a truck driving down the road two miles away and think you're hunting wolves, but the wolves are bigger. They're fed better. They're, they're a lot more prone to be active in daylight. And, uh, i don't know my success rate went way up once i once i did that so most of these bait sites i can access with a truck and if not with a truck i can get to them within whatever half a mile off the off the uh from the truck
0: yeah that's wild you know sometimes you overthink it right you know it's like you know trying to think that oh i got to get back in there deep and i think you know guys listening to coyote hunters i think it's very similar parallels there sometimes you overthink it sometimes it's just a pretty simple simple game at some point it's just a a matter of execution you know yeah so walk me through the you know the bait thing has always interested me you know as far as the type of baits is it do you have your own special secret concoction of a bait that you use or is it pretty similar obviously there's other outfitters that do the same thing across Canada and, and everywhere else but does everybody have like their own secret bait that they think works better or or you know, walk me through that whole process of how big of a pain in the ass it is to, to to keep all this bait around and, uh, you know,
1: yeah, I've got a I've got a really really good deal up here. I'm I'm friends with all the butcher shops in the area, and you know, all the farmers. They call me if they're if they're doing some home butchering, butchering some pigs or some cattle or whatever. They call me to come pick up all the scraps. So I have access to a lot of bait, and I I think more important than the type of bait is the amount of bait and the more bait you can get out there, the more wolf activity you're going to have in your bait site. Um, I mean, ideally if you can find roadkill moose, that's ideal. Oh, roadkill <laughs> moose is <laughs> the best roadkill deer. And, and we'll pick those up and, and take them to these bait sites all the time.
0: All right, stop, I got to a- ask, que- so this moose, are you, are you cutting this sucker up like into quarters and leaving like, a, or are you throwing the whole damn moose carcass out there on the on the bait pile? <laughs> that, that depends where I'm at. If it, <laughs> it's in an area, if I'm driving down a gravel
1: road, he's only like ten miles from from my bait site. Uh, the redneck and me just kind of hooks him up and drags him off of the bait site. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but if not, I'll I'll get a trailer and I'll load him up and uh, and bring him whole to these bait sites. Uh, and and they last. Uh, if, a fairly long time and the wolf will come back to that moose hide. Even if it's just a moose hide left, they'll come to on that moose hide before they'll touch any domestic meat, uh, which is weird. Yeah but, yeah, but, but so, but to back up to the roadkill thing, you I do have to get a permit from the fish and wildlife and the, the fish and wildlife if you're super good with me now, where I, I just take a picture, send it to him, land location, here's where I picked it up. And just so they know if they, if they stumble across one of my bait sites and there's five deer and a moose land there, that did not (laughs) what's going on here so um but one of the best domestic meats and uh, you you don't have a very sensitive uh uh, group of listeners here so so one of the best domestic meats for wolf bait by far is horse
0: if, you know that if, uh, that's crazy because all the all the government trappers that I've ever talked to that have have done similar stuff trying to kill coyotes, you know, down in this country, they said that by far too is horse like three to one over cows.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and I and I think while the meat for one is I think a little bit sweeter and, and it tastes a little bit better, but the hide is so much thinner on a horse than on a on a cow, and it's just it's just easier to get to, especially once it gets frozen.
0: That's, so I'll, so so when you throw this, are you are you hoping to throw a big enough chunk there that the wolves can't drag it off, or or do they even try to drag it off, or or do you really care, or do you try to secure it down, do you freeze it into the ground, do you ever do anything like that to kind of keep the keep the carcass there or anything like that, or does it really matter?
1: I've I've done it all. It does matter actually. I've I've done it all. I've frozen it into a lake or frozen it into a pond so they can't drag it away. So they have to sit there and chew it, but. I mean, if we're hunting wolves over bait, it's, it's got to be kind of in an open area, obviously, where you can see these wolves. And the wolf does not like to sit in an open area in daylight and chew on a piece of bait. And so the wolf, from my experience, my success rate went up once I, I started just putting a lot more bait out there where they can grab a chunk and, and run off and eat it. Which it, it's... You're not going to see as much of a wolf activity on your bait, but you're gonna at least have an opportunity in daylight when they come out, grab a chunk and go back in the bush. Whereas if it's just a frozen chunk, frozen in the middle where they can't drag it off, they really don't wanna come out in daylight. They have to sit there and chew on this hunk of bait where they feel pretty exposed. But if they can come in, grab a chunk and go back off in the bush and eat it, they're a little bit more okay with that from my experience. So,
0: yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah. You know, the parallel the, I'm just in my mind as a coyote hunter, you know, the, the parallels of this between, you know, down down in our country, we have feet big feedlots, you know, and all these ranchers usually have a dead pit, you know, if they have a, a cow or whatever, or hog barns or whatever it may be, and they have a place where they pile up all their dead stuff. And as a coyote hunter, those are places that, you know, you can get around and just the the coyote densities are just, you know, three fourfold of what they would be you know without it because it's all this extra food source you know to keep the coyotes there and things like that and it's it just kind of it's unique to me and it's it's interesting to me that the parallels of baiting wolves are real similar to to the concepts of of hunting around dead pits and and things like that for coyotes yeah
1: it is and
0: and these you know sometimes you'll have a
1: pack that'll do something completely opposite as the next pack like you'll have a a pack that's pretty consistent in daylight uh, and they'll they'll keep coming in keep showing up in the trail cameras in daylight but then you'll have the next pack that for years i'll have on a bait site and they will not show themselves in daylight ever so if that's the case then uh, i'll go in there with my snares and i'll try and snare that entire pack out of there and so a new pack will show up the following year and if they're not showing up in daylight The worm hunters can shoot them well i'll snare them out of there too <laughs> it might take another year another pack will show up oh these these guys are showing up in daylight so uh, it's uh it's it just varies so much from from wolf pack to wolf pack they are the most random creature on the face of the earth and, and it's it's they it can be such a frustrating animal to hunt because it doesn't make sense and i for years i kept track of uh the moon phase, the temperature, wind direction, cloud cover, um, barometric mm-hmm. pressure, every time we had a wolf sighting, and, and also every time we killed one, but every time we had a wolf sighting. And there was no correlation between any of them, except for temperature. T- temperature was the only one that was somewhat consistent, and it was exact opposite of what I thought it was going to be. When the temperatures plummeted, and went uh, like down to 35 and 40 below, the wolf activity on these baits just dropped right off. And then when the temperature, when it was that cold, and then we had a schnuck a blow in, and the temperature really warmed up for three or four days, those three or four days was was probably twice as good wolf hunting as when it was super cold. And I I, I didn't really figure it out or why, but I, I think the only conclusion I can come come up with is that at 40 below this bait is frozen so solid that they're having problems chewing it and they're just more apt to go kill a deer and eat some warm meat and when the temperature warms up this bait is still frozen but it's not frozen rock hard solid and they can chew it so i I don't know maybe i'm just grasping at straws but
0: that's that's crazy interesting maybe because you know i've talked about this on podcasts before and, and while we've been filming You know, when I've been coyote hunting and it's extremely cold, like way colder than normal temps, like the coyote hunting, calling coyotes anyway is not great. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's very similar to the the activity level that you're talking about. And I've always thought it's just, it's like, it's so cold that the coyotes just kind of hunker up and they say, you know what, it's just even too cold for me to move. I'm just going to kind of curdle up here and, and kind of hang out. Um, you know, that I don't really be, want to move a whole lot when it's that cold.
1: That could exact, that could be exact same thing with a wolf. It it might just be, but it, it's, it was interesting. <clears throat> excuse me. It was interesting just to, just to, to realize it after, after tracking it for so many years. So, and I, and I don't know why,
0: but you're in the rest of all, all the information you were studying, the barometric pressure moon phase. I mean, that's all stuff too, that I've looked at. I mean, probably any serious coyote hunters probably tried to figure something out and it's the same way with coyotes. It's just a random, like, nothing makes sense it's uh, you know it's it, it, doesn't, a... it doesn't
1: it doesn't you think wow shoot it's been uh, it's been uh perfect temperature conditions are perfect you go deer hunting right well it makes a huge difference when you're deer hunting but on these predators it just it just
0: they're random so back to the the bait sites obviously you have trail cameras probably on these so you can monitor when when wolves are coming and, and things like that
1: yeah, and I've switched over to any bait site that has at least any sort of cell coverage. I've switched over to these cell cameras, and it has been a game changer to know when these wolves are hitting these bait sites. And, and it's also a little bit frustrating because we last year we had a bait site where the wolves were on camera for 10 nights in a row, and we sat that same bait site for 10 days in a row, and the wind was right for every day, 10 days in a row. We did not have a single wolf setting on there. That was frustrating. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's a game changer. I I put these cameras everywhere and I don't put them right on the bait itself. You're going to have 13 million Raven pictures every single day and you're going to replace your batteries every day. So I put them, you're going to, you're going to miss some wolves, but whatever. I'll put them on a good wolf trail just off uh, you
0: off have you boundary. ever got a picture of one and you're like oh that's the most badass wolf i've ever seen and like you've never had a hunter ever see it and you're constantly seeing it on pictures but you're in like a wolf like you're like that's the one we want to get because that
1: yeah i'll say when we get off this podcast i'll send you a picture he's a giant he's he's a wolf that hung around for a number of years and we never we never did end up killing him but just a. A horse of a wolf he's
0: just <laughs> he's just huge <laughs>
1: yeah but yeah i've got a couple bait sites where there's been some big wolves that uh they're just they're just smart we don't haven't been able to kill them that is uh, cool about, about wolves
0: because like you can identify them with the different colorations and things like a coyote you know you can't uh, you don't really know if that's the same coyote you saw you know but the wolf you can be like oh yeah that's the same oh, sucker right there
1: absolutely i've got a guy sitting on a on a bait site right now hunting a a fairly white wolf and he's a, he's a big wolf and he's been there for three years that I know of. And just last week he showed back up and I've had the bait side going for over a month now. Um, but he just showed up last week and he's a beautiful wolf. We had an opportunity at him, uh, two years ago. Um, but he was just a little, he was on the back side of the pack. And so I ended up killing a wolf that was a, a little closer to him, but he's, he's another beauty. So it's pretty interesting to watch and to see, uh, how i don't know just their different attitudes on the on the trail cameras as well and their dominance and how they're displaying dominance and the rest of them are submissive And yeah I, I
0: enjoy it so what kind of what kind of blinds are you sitting in i mean a distance from the bait site um talk me through the setup are you, are you setting these guys up on tripods you know with their rifles or are they just shooting out the window off of, off the lip of the window i mean walk me through all that
1: so my blinds are all insulated and heated. Um, so that it really takes a chill factor out of sitting all day. And I, and I make my hunters sit all day because the wolf, as you as we were saying earlier, is random. They show up 10 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, first light, last light, it don't matter. So the a hunter has to have the ability to sit there all day in comfort. And so most of the blinds are 6 feet by 6 feet or 4 feet by 8 feet and they're all insulated and with windows and most hunters are shooting off the, the lip of the window. And then I've got the Primo's trigger sticks for the back end of their gun. And uh, a, a bunch of my blinds are all different. And I've been uh, exploring different blind ideas over the years. It's yeah. just a couple of them. we got shooting benches built right in them. So you're super comfortable with a sandbag, whatever. And then the next one, just, uh, just shooting off the, the window lip and shots usually average about 175 yards i don't i'd like to put a bait site at like 250 just just so that the hunter can get away with a little bit of noise in the blind because you're, you're sitting all day you get a little bit lax and you, you make some noise and, and stuff and while that wolf could be 10 feet into the trees you just can't see him so yeah, yeah. the further away you can be from that bait site the better I found that uh, I get too many misses and wounded wolves if I if I back the blinds up kind of past that 175 yard mark, and so the 175 yards
0: seems to be the sweet spot. That's that's interesting. Well, now you talked about you know some of these wolves getting away. You know, size wise, what you know, this is something you'll see debated a lot. You know, oh, that was a 200 pound <laughs> wolf, or yeah. that was this. You know, obviously, you've been around a ton of wolves. Now, are are these considered timber wolves or gray wolves? Where you're at,
1: uh,
0: or well, they really the same up there? No, there's really no They're really
1: the same. They're all really be classified as a gray wolf, but these would be like the timber wolf subspecies, if you will. Um, so they are the largest subspecies of wolf that you'll find, and it is super rare to kill a wolf over 130 pounds.
0: Yeah, I mean, any I wolf heard,
1: any wolf over that kind of 110 pound mark. Is gonna be is gonna look like an absolute monster wolf.
0: <laughs> when you see the guys I, bear I, hugging it, and the head's like twice the size of their head, you know, yeah, good for six foot down. That's we're talking. That's like the hundred and twenty,
1: yeah, range. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll send you a picture after the podcast of a of a wolf that was one hundred and thirty two. I mean, he looks like he's one hundred and ninety pounds. Like he, he looks giant, but they've got so much hair. I mean, just like a like a cougar too. you like to kill a one hundred and eighty pound cougar, it takes a lot. Yeah. to get a, a cat that size but uh my dad killed one a number of years ago uh i was sitting with him one of my wolf baits and this wolf showed up and i knew he was big but i didn't know he was this big so he, we we killed him and we put him on the scale and he was 140 and that's the biggest wolf that i've ever seen uh, so but you're you're like to kill a female over 100 pounds rare that's so wild. yeah
0: now, one other question I just thought of. So, so when you're sitting on this bait pile, percentage wise, what is it uh, as a as a lone wolf comes rolling in versus you know a group, maybe the whole pack, or even if it's the whole pack, is there usually like a lead wolf that might show up a few minutes earlier or half hour earlier, or they all just come rolling in and a, like a big herd of wolves, you know, come running into yeah. the bait? I mean, what how's that normally work when when things do show up? You know i don't know what would happen if we would leave
1: the first wolf that comes into a bait site if we would leave a bee to see how many wolf, more wolves would show up because a lot of these baits i've got four five six seven nine wolves on the cameras um but usually the first wolf that's coming in is getting shot right <laughs> yeah. you, you don't you you've don't been, pass you've been up sitting the there wolf.
0: freezing your ass off for five days and you're like oh yeah it's time
1: yeah a bird in hand is better than two in the bush yeah. so
0: um
1: but Yeah, I would say probably 30% of the time, the guys are seeing multiples come in. Um, But the rest of the time, the rest of the 70% of the time, it's just a lone wolf comes in. Oh, there's a wolf. Boom. Wolf goes down. And then the rest of the pack will light up in the bush behind it or whatever. Um, I actually, because I hunt these bait sites for four months of the winter, I prefer it if it's a lone wolf coming in if the rest of the pack doesn't see what happens so the rest of the packs not educated yeah 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 but i i am continually surprised at some of these wolf packs when they'll have a member shot out of them and the whole pack is there it'll take a couple of weeks before they come back the whole pack but they'll you'll have a lone wolf there maybe the next night or the night after but that whole pack will eventually come back to that bait site and they'll continue feeding, and we'll and we'll shoot multiple more wolves out of that back as time goes on.
0: So let's say there were multiple wolves standing there at the bait site, two, three, whatever, and boom, he shoots one. I mean, do those suckers, the rest of them, just take off sprinting back into the brush like a you know like a lot of times coyotes, but sometimes coyotes will just stand there looking mm-hmm. around like what the hell was that or how does that normally work?
1: You'll usually get a couple seconds if you kill one. They'll freeze and they'll look for. A second or two, so if you're quick on the on the trigger, you can get a second shot off and and dump a second one. But then once you fire that second shot, poof, they are gone. <laughs> so <laughs> very similar to kites yeah. Guess. Yeah.
0: So at that point, do, I mean, do you have do you have communication? Like, if some guy shot one at ten o'clock in the morning, I mean, is that day pretty much done on that site? I mean, once he fires a no. or you can he, you'll just leave it. The wolf just lay out there and he'll sit there the rest of the day. Yeah,
1: I'll leave them there. I've it, It's happened to actually a surprising amount where a guy will shoot a wolf in the morning and I'll tell him if there's wolves howling, anything's going on there, just sit there. And if, if the ravens are coming in and they're pecking the eyeballs out of your wolf or whatever, go out there, pull that wolf back to the blind and sit there. And it's, it's happened to quite a few times where we've killed a second wolf and even a third wolf on the same day. Wow. Yeah, especially especially if he's there by himself if the whole pack has come in if there's four or five wolves there when he fires his first shot no that pack's not coming back that day but if if they're off in the trees and and they they light up or start howling like a half mile away oh yeah absolutely sit the rest of the day
0: do you normally like you know if i'm multiple coyotes come into my stand but man i'm dumping a mag you know trying to kill them running uh do you tell your guys like hey don't if they're running off don't shoot at them but hey or is is it worth taking a running shot at one of these wolves trying to get back into the trees or just kind of the hunter probably what the hunter's comfortable with or what
1: there's always hope when there's lead in the air yeah yeah (laughs) if lead don't fly stuff don't die so i i say you put lead down range we all enjoy pulling the trigger
0: Well, I figure, you know, they're already probably educated to some extent when that first shot rang out, you know, so what's another shot or two ringing out going to probably hurt, huh?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) no, I'm a a big proponent to send a lead down right now.
0: (laughs) Now, if if, let's say some guy made a bad shot, gut shot a wolf, something like that, and he he calls you up and says, man, I just shot one, but it ran back into the brush do you play it like a, like a deer? Do you say, okay, let's give that wolf some time. Or are you like, no, we got to get in after this because you know, wolves are different. And they just don't stop or.
1: Uh, very similar. It depends on the situation. If, if a wolf is hit in the, in the, if, if we're tracking it and we can see, okay, yeah, he's, he's been hitting the hind leg and he's, and he's holding, and he's dragging a hind leg. I'll leave that wolf for, for sure a day and, and try and track him the following day because they can still, cover a lot of ground with the missing hind leg if they've if it's a front leg i'll chase that wolf as hard as i can as fast as i can for as long as i can especially if there's any sort of blood loss at all because i've been able to catch up to them um because because all their weight is in their front end right and if they lose their their front leg they're so much easier to catch especially if you're in some really thick brush and they've got to go over logs and under logs and over deadfall and all this stuff um you, usually you can catch him if if there's enough snow on the ground where you don't have to you don't have to look for blood you can just follow his his tracks in the snow uh, um, we've been able to run him down quite a few times actually so it depends on on where that wolf is hit um if if, if you know he's just gut shot or something like that we'll uh, we'll just leave him and and come back the next day
0: Huh, that's interesting I noticed that with coyotes like coyotes like if you don't get at they just it's like they get hurt and they just go like they don't they don't lay it, unless they're hurt really really bad but they're not like a deer you know like a, oh we better back out and let this deer go lay up you know we don't want to keep bumping them I've just learned hey coyotes you better you better, you better get, get on out. them quick you know or you're not going to ever find the damn thing you know
1: yeah especially if he's hitting that front end area you just go and go and go and go we we caught one I'll, I'll send you a cool video yet uh, once we get off the phone um, we had a wolf get hit in the front end, and uh, we tried to, to get him that night, and it got dark, and we couldn't get him. So the early the next morning, first light, and he was shot like right at last light kind of type of deal. And the next morning, we went in there, and we we kept bumping him, and bumping him, bumping him. And I think my uh, my uh, GPS showed eight miles when we finally did catch up to him, and and we caught him, and he was a giant giant wolf, um, but. Yeah, we just, we knew, we knew we were close and we knew we could catch him if we'd kept going. And eventually he just, he just tired out and couldn't go anymore and, and we caught him.
0: Heck yeah. So now we're on the subject of, of shooting these coyotes. Caliber wise, is there something specifically to say, hey, you, if you're coming up here to shoot one of these wolves, you better have at least a, what, caliber? Or are you like, nah, just bring whatever you can, you know, it's it's accuracy is more important, whatever gun you can shoot you put a bullet on the ribs shoot. we're going to kill we're going to kill this wolf kind of a concept
1: i tell them shoot the largest caliber that you can that you're comfortable with that you're comfortable shooting and i don't care if that's a, a 7 rem mag or a 300 win mag whatever overkill just gives you a little bit of insurance and if they're shooting a large caliber i tell them to bring a bullet that's not going to blow up on them right um so but 243 and up is what i prefer i tend to try and stay away from the 223s and the 22250s, which works just fine to kill a wolf if you hit him right. But if you, I mean, if you hit a wolf in the, in the hind end uh, for whatever reason, I'd much rather have that hit be with a 300 wind mag than a 223.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and so I I had a guy bring a, a 22 Creedmoor last year, and I when he showed up, I'm like, man, that's that seems super small, but the ballistics on that 22 Creedmoor are better than a two, two 243, and the energy retention out to long range is is better than a 243, which is mind blowing. And he ended up dumping a wolf at 509 yards, and it only went ten feet and and dumped over. So I was pretty impressed.
0: Yeah, that's a poke. Yeah, that's. A, I just had uh, the last podcast was Hornady, the Hornady guys, and we talked a lot about terminal ballistics and you know i i've always wondered that you know because everybody i've always talked to has always talked about hey you're you're shooting this wolf man you better have a big gun and i'm like but i'm thinking to myself this is like a 100 pound animal 120 pound animal that's half the size of a mule deer you know it's a thin
1: it's a thin-skinned 100 pound animal but yeah, they so- have a will to live like like yeah. very few other north american animals do <laughs> and and so I I just I just prefer going to a bigger caliber, but sucks. No, we've killed plenty of wolves with with a two twenty-three or two twenty-two. It works just fine if you can place your shot properly, obviously.
0: Yeah. You, you know, I I was always curious, you know, I I shoot coyotes right square in the shoulder. You know, obviously they're not near as thick as a wolf, but you know, it drops them right there. I, I suppose that's would at least be my strategy is like, hey, you know, there's like timber, you know, X amount of yards from this bait side. Last thing I'm gonna do is, you know liver shot this, this wolf, you know, mid-body and watch him run back in there 200 yards, you know, even though you probably track him in the snow. Much easier if you can just shoot him right through the shoulder. Oh, that know.
1: shoulder shot is money. Drop it's him money. right there where you don't have to worry
0: about mm-hmm. tracking the damn thing, you know? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And all my Arctic wolf hunts, the Arctic wolf hunts are a little bit different, and we can touch on that a little later. But up north, we run these wolves down with snowmobiles, and it's perfect with the eagle up there, which is, oh, okay. oh, it is a blast. <laughs> so um, but there i'll just use uh not an ar but a canadian legal version of an ar basically and and that's um and shooting two two threes and and two two fours and whatever so uh, and it works just fine But, but all of those shots are at running wolves at i mean we'll get right up to five feet from them with a snowmobile slam on the brakes jump off and start shooting and so your first shot might be a 30 yards and your last light might be at 120 yards and then you're back from the snowmobile and, and get close again so the 223 um, was awesome
0: right there you should have never mentioned this kyler because now i'm in love with wolf hunting i think chasing them down <laughs> running shots i mean <laughs> the redneck inside of me is coming out yeah.
1: this is the funnest wolf hunt you will ever do in your entire life it is insane <laughs> And I don't, I don't video any of this stuff because there's way too many sensitive people out there, and I don't want this hunt to ever get shut down because it's too much fun. It's, it's almost too much fun to be legal. (laughs) So, (laughs) last year, I took twelve hunters up there, and we killed nineteen wolves in three weeks.
0: Oh, jeez,
1: it was awesome.
0: (laughs) It was awesome. So yeah, and, I mean, are so... you bundled? I mean, are we talking? You look like an Eskimo on this thing because you're you're hauling around on the snowmobile all day. Yeah, super cold. Oh, yeah. Just
1: oh yeah, no, it's it's cold. It 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 can be miserable weather, absolutely. But it's so worth it. Yeah, no doubt it's worth it. Like so how many miles a day I, you putting
0: I've, on the snowmobiles?
1: It very much depends on where these caribou are and where the wolves are because we'll we'll go up there. Okay, I'll back up. I'll tell you the whole story. So we based at a Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, and North of Yellowknife, there is no all-season roads at all. But every year they put in, it's called an ice road. I don't know if you've seen the first season of Ice Road Truckers.
0: I never. Wa- I know what you're talking about, but I never watched oh. it.
1: Okay, the first season of Ice Road Truckers was out of Yellowknife. And, and there's an ice road that goes, shoot, I think it's um, 330 miles up to a whole bunch of different diamond and gold mines up there and it actually stretches right into uh, it used to go into Nunavut territory as well but now it's uh, now the end of the ice road is just inside the northwest territories uh, Nunavut border and these caribou are migrating from uh, their, their summer calving grounds up north uh, right on the, the Arctic Ocean they'll come back down inland and just north of the tree line type of deal and around these diamond mines and so this ice road kind of goes right through the middle of that And where these caribou are wintering, there's wolves that follow these caribou all year round. And so wherever there's going to be large herds of caribou, there will be wolves. And so what I do is just try and find where these caribou are, and I'll babysit them. And it it might be three days, it might be five days before I see a wolf track. But all of a sudden, okay, there's a, a fresh wolf track, and then there'll be another one, another one. Okay, there's a pack of wolves is here. And we'll just, we'll just follow them because we're north of the tree line. Shoot. We can go a- as far as our tanks of gas will let us. And, uh, and eventually we'll catch up to these wolves. And when <laughs> that feeling of coming over the top of a hill and looking down and there's a pack of eight <laughs> or 10 wolves in the middle of a lake somewhere. Oh, 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 oh there's nothing better. Nothing better.
2: You got to tell them, Kyler, you got to tell them the story of Norm's snowmobile starting on fire. <laughs>
1: Okay, so I hired uh, uh, a young guy and actually now sold him part of my business, um, and it was his first year in the Arctic, and, <laughs> uh, and I would chased plenty of wolves by this time. And I told Norman, just follow me and you'll learn what we're going to do this week. And uh, So just go where I go, because there's lots of rocks everywhere, you've got to watch out so you don't wreck your snowmobile it's super rough all the snow is all windswept and you in your mind you might be thinking this is soft powdery snow no it's rock hard windswept it's like white caps on a lake just snow and, yeah. it's, and it's hard and um so i told him you just just follow just follow me and uh and we i think we'd already killed a couple of wolves the previous day and we had two tags left to fill and, uh, and we're looking over this herd of caribou and there's, I don't know, maybe three, 400 caribou in this little bowl. And one of my hunters, uh, Daniel Welker was his name. Uh, amazing eyes, that fella. But he spotted these, uh, these couple wolves in a, in a good spot, but there was no lakes around it. We prefer to chase these wolves on the lakes where there's no rocks that you can hit. And, and, uh, but there, there wasn't any, we're, we're, we're on this land and there's no lakes close by. So I'm like, shoot Norman. We're just gonna give it a go. And I told these guys, hang on. And uh if we hit a rock or two, just bail gracefully and try not to get hurt. And so we and so we take off after these wolves and uh and Norman's got a guy in the back of his snowmobile and I've got a guy in the back of mine. And we kill the first wolf fairly quickly. And the second wolf has made a lot of miles by that time. And we get on his tracks and uh, come over the rise, and I, I can't see this wolf anywhere. I'm like, shoot, where did he go? And I pull up my binoculars and I, I get up in glass, and he was just cresting the hill, but a mile away. I'm like, oh, there he is. And so I gun it. And there's rocks all over the place that are like just barely under the snow. And I'm trying to avoid these as best I can. <laughs> and I hit one just square right between the skis. And it, I mean, boom and i thought my snowmobile was busted and i all i see is is my guy todd stroud is the guy's name i just see his boots come past my ears i'm thinking oh no i've I've lost him and i and we land super hard and boom and i and I, i start turning around and i don't see todd anywhere and boom he lands back in the back of my snowmobile yes got him and so we keep going and kill this wolf Well, lo and behold, Norman had taken my advice and he's following exactly my tracks. Well, I I dusted all the snow off of this rock, the little snow that was there. Well, he hits this rock square, just, just (laughs) a pile drives into it. And, uh, and they both stayed on the snowmobile by some miracle and the snowmobile's kind of still driving and we kill this wolf and we're hooting and hollering and whatever. We're all tagged out. Everybody's happy. And Norman's still standing on a snowmobile, and I look over at Norman. And I said, "Hey, hey, Norman, your snowmobile's on fire!" And he's got all this gear on uh, the big whatever hat and a, a balaclava and the goggles over top. She says, "What?" I <laughs> said, "Your snowmobile's on fire!" And and there's there's flames coming up to his to his chest between his legs, and he's not even noticing. I said, "Get off your snowmobile!" And I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> so we bail off. We try and put this fire out, but we we can't. we can't. We can't put the fire out. The whole snowmobile burns to the ground and creates little hole in the snow. And so we're left there with two dead wolves, four guys, and one snowmobile. And we're quite a ways from the truck. So <laughs> it made for an interesting rest of the day. <laughs> but, uh, but we got her done. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> that, you know, that, the parallels of this stuff are just, like, you guys are we, the same stuff happens down here with coyotes, you know, chasing them in pickups and snowmobiles and stuff like that. But that's like uh, that's like doing it on steroids. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty, wild. It's pretty cool, yeah. Being
1: right close to the Arctic Circle and, and chasing, a, chasing a true white Arctic wolf around the tundra, it's, uh, it's a pretty neat experience.
0: Are all those wolves white or are they the color oh. variations, too, of the Arctic wolf?
1: The majority of them are white like they are a true arctic wolf but there's color variations especially once we get closer to the tree line um you'll get some some darker phase wolves and, and some of the we we've never killed a black wolf up there ever until i think it was 2018 and then we ended up killing three in one year which was wild wow. um, and this in this past season we we killed uh, another black one but majority of them are that whitish color phase
0: you guys ever use shotguns for that deal? Uh I did, it would not be effective.
1: It, it it is effective if you got the right guy. Yeah, yeah. Um but it, it scared me a little bit. I the one year i had a short barreled or short stock short barreled like one of them defender shotguns that a guy can maneuver pretty easily in the back of a snowmobile. And uh but with him riding with a with a guy riding in the back,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> you gotta trust a lot of I'm, trust. I'm, 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 I'm,
1: yeah i was scared i was gonna get my head blown off so i uh <laughs> i kind of shied away from that.
0: <laughs> well if, yeah it's all i tell you you would think a wolf running five yards beside the snowmobile would be easy to to kill him but when you're bouncing around yeah it's uh
1: <laughs> yeah you're you're hanging on easier said than done rough when it, like when we do catch the odd wolf like down in the tree line where the wind doesn't blow as much and on some of those lakes yeah we'll have smooth snow and if we can catch them on those lakes, oh yeah, no, we'll just run up beside them and shoot them at three feet, which is pretty cool. But further north, once we get past the tree line and it's all windswept and rock hard snow, now nah, you're you're hanging on for dear life, and, uh, and so we got to stop the snowmobile before we pull trigger.
0: How fast? How fast when you're running those wolves down? How fast are they running through that terrain right there with the snow and stuff? Shoot, shoot, I've never
1: I've never kept track, but I know they can go a long time. I had an archery guy come up and he wanted to shoot one with his bow and I zeroed my odometer before we chased this wolf and so from the time we saw him till the time we had that wolf dead that wolf ran the exact same speed for the entire time and we had put 45 kilometers on my snowmobile what that is in in miles yeah. I'll pull it up here real quick 45 to about 1.6 so it's 28 miles that that wolf ran and it never broke stride, not
0: once. And this yeah. guy shot it with a bow? Like he was on the snowmobile behind you and like drew his bow and shot it running? Or,
1: Yeah, we tried a bunch of different ways. He wanted to kill it with his bow real bad. And I'd, I'd never done it before with a bow before that trip, that particular one. And uh, and so we tried pulling up beside it, slamming on the brakes and shooting. But it's, it's hard to get a narrow... <laughs> arrow shot off uh, with all those clothes on and it's cold and you're shooting at a, a running wolf it, it's pretty tough so we lost uh, whatever a couple dozen arrows that way and then I, I ended up I ended up um, putting him beside a, a pile of rocks um, on the edge of this lake and we ended up pushing this wolf by him and uh, and they ended up killing it that way so the old wolf. <laughs> wolf drive <laughs> oh that's that's crazy yeah Yeah. whatever you can sometimes i feel sorry for these wolves hunting them that way but you know they hunt their prey the exact same way yeah yeah i I don't care
0: no that that sounds freaking fun right there it is a good time
1: (laughs) 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 yeah it's a lot more exciting than sitting over a bait pile i'll tell you that much
0: yeah yeah (laughs) what what's like the ultimate like is a black wolf is that like the the ultimate like in the in the wolf game it's like oh i got this jet black wolf or is there a is there a certain wolf that's like oh yeah that's that's the one right there
1: you know everybody Does everybody have their different preferences everybody has their 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 preferences but by far everybody wants to shoot one of these black or dark phase wolves um to me the ultimate wolf is that blue color phase
0: um, with more of the gray kind of mixed in with the black e- is that what you're talking yeah about?
1: Yeah, and you can get like a salt and pepper kind of wolf, which is not real pretty, but you get that that blue wolf. I'll, I'll send you another picture. I got a bunch of pictures I got to send you after this podcast. But they're they're super pretty and they're by far the most rare color phase of any wolf. Um, but everybody likes killing these black ones. And I'm to me personally, it's either that blue color phase or just the regular wolf color when you see a National Geographic <laughs> The video of a wolf running through the snow in Yellowstone, and he's just that gray, regular that gray
0: coyote colored looking one.
1: Yep. They're they're pretty. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. I'm still thinking about chasing these things on snowmobiles, to be honest with you. Can't, <laughs> I can't get past that.
1: <laughs> it's uh it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. And I you know, I don't sell very many of those hunts uh, every year. And pretty much any time I put those hunts on the market, like i okay, I've got Three openings left for 2024, let's say, boom, they're gone within a week. Yeah. Oh, I
0: can see why. Yeah. It.
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably the most expensive wolf hunt you can do in North America, but it's uh, probably the best.
0: Oh, yeah. Hell
1: yeah. Well,
0: success rate, right? It's all about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, we did have one hunter uh, last year not kill one. Uh, it, it Like we had the 12 guys killed 19 wolves, but one guy didn't get anything. And it, it, it can be, it can be a super frustrating hunt, especially if the weather goes sideways. And, uh, I mean, you're so far North, you're so reliant on good weather and, um, the snowstorms, you'll get a bad snowstorm that'll blow for five or six days. Well, shoot, if, if that's when your hunt is scheduled and we're up there, you get a five day blow and you're just hunkered down, trying to, trying to survive it. Yeah. That, uh, then your success rate goes down, but you get a few sunny days, you're going to kill
0: a wolf. Yeah. That's that weather, man. It'll about anything you're doing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So before we get off here, do you got, you got one more really good, good wolf story in you? (sighs) You probably got a a thousand, but I,
1: I got a good wolf trapping story.
0: All right. Let's hear it.
1: I've been trying to kill this one wolf for a long time. I had a, I had a bait site, um, where we'd killed shoot i think probably 30 some wolves over uh over a three or four year period but there was one wolf that uh that we we couldn't kill and this my trapping partner and i terry unra um terry's also a wizard at, at snaring wolves and we'd kind of given up on this on this wolf but he kept coming back to this bait site but he wouldn't he wouldn't come all the way in but he'd the coyotes would be on this bait sites and they'd drag, uh, some bait off and, uh, and he would just kind of circle the area and, and, uh, and eat that, the scraps, whatever these coyotes had pulled off in the trees. And so I started just hanging random snares all over the place and, and I couldn't get him, couldn't get him. And then for about uh, a month, he wouldn't show up at all. We'd killed all the rest of the wolves in the area. So he was the only one left. So that's why I knew he was just, just this wolf. And, uh, I pulled back in this bait site and I I already just set some coyote snares in the, in the main area. And, uh, and I saw these wolf tracks and I'm like, oh man, he's back. So I thought, well, now I'm going to get him. And so, but he hadn't gone to the bait site. He just, he just circled the whole thing about, I don't know, the closest he ever come was probably about a hundred yards to the bait site. And so I started dragging some, uh, pieces of deer carcasses and roadkill. Uh, I drug it out. 150 200 yards away from these bait sites and I put a whole bunch of snares all around this uh all around these um uh, pieces of bait that I drug them off in the bush just to try and get him away from the main bait site. I figure maybe I could catch him there and then he wouldn't he wouldn't come to that and so I let a coyote had drug a piece of bait a little further and so I set that area and so I left the main trail open i walked over kind of built this main trail it's hard to draw a, a word picture for you here, but and then the, around there I, I blocked every trail off there's no way he'd get out of there unless he'd go through my snare uh, a bunch of snares i'd set up in this ring and well lo and behold about a month later this wolf comes in goes into this little this little area but on this main trail i thought oh yes I, i've got him and he had uh, he'd smelled the bait, and then he took off um, to the right, I believe it was, and right into one of my snares. But right before he hit it, he stopped, turned around, backed out of it. The snare had actually dropped, and so I just missed him. And then he and then he went to leave and hit a second snare, and he and he almost stepped into that one, and he backed out of it. And he did it to a third one, and he backed out of it. And at that point, he just slowly walked. You could see he wasn't running anymore. He just slowly backtracked where he'd come out of. And he just slowly walked very carefully, backtracked where he'd come from. And then he took off running. Well, I'd set some some random snares, uh, just hoping to, to catch him as he if he would ever take off from this area. And he did exactly that. Well, he's running and he hits one of these snares. And as he hits it, he skids. He's, he breaks, whoosh, skid marks in the snow, right before my snare, backs up, and walks away. And I never killed that wolf. Not <laughs> uh, you, bugger.
0: <laughs> Man, that's wild. Yeah. So, never yeah. did I ever see him again? Or was that the last time you ever saw him ne- on trail he cameras? He never came back.
1: No, rest of the winter, I had a couple of trail cameras up. He never did come back. And uh, I never did catch him.
0: Okay. No yeah,
1: well, they're fun to chase around.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's—I mean, that's that's just predators in general. That's just something that I've, like you said, you take guys out and shoot moose and caribou and bear, you know, even bear. But just something about these these predators. It's just it adds a, that extra little level of, I don't know, technical difficulty. I guess you can call it. You know,
2: yeah.
0: Just, that's wild. Yeah. Absolutely yeah well i'm gonna de- you know we're gonna shut this one down right here but I- i'm gonna have to have you back on I- maybe right after the wolf season gets done kind of get an update on uh you know how the snowmobile trip went how the baiting's going you know i gotta <laughs> i think if everybody listens to this is like me you can probably listen to these wolf hunting stories all day long you know i love
2: it <laughs> well the good thing is sure. i think uh i think both of you guys are going to be at hunt expo correct i am i am going to be yeah Gascadillo, yeah in salt Gascadillo, lake things,
1: yeah recording perfect
0: heck yeah we'll do we'll do one there that'll be right at the end of everything and you'll have some fresh new stories and everything Absolutely. there heck what, yeah. when is
1: that honda expo again is that the first week in february or last yep. week of
0: february yep first, first week in february out in salt lake yep okay yeah yeah i will be there heck yeah well great well kyler if anybody wants to kind of find what what you're doing uh you know is interested in, in getting with you to to book a hunt what's what's the best way for them to do that
1: uh you can email me kyler at wingmasteroutfitting.com check out the website uh kyler or wingmasteroutfitting.com um my adventure northwest uh website is down being rebuilt uh still um or you can find me on social media instagram my instagram handle is just kyler knelson and uh yeah pretty pretty simple or called I guess everybody can call or text me 780-247-0247.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, hopefully there's a lot of diehards listening to this, you know, that Wolf is on their, on the top of their list. So (laughs) hopefully they'll get, they'll get in touch with you, man. Good deal.
1: Well, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate being on your podcast and uh, it's been fun.
0: You bet. Well, We'll do it again. Brandon, before I let you go, what, uh, fill us in, you know, we're getting close to Christmas time. Anything Eastman's got going special on, on their website, Anything coming up there?
2: Yeah, we do. We got a bunch of Black Friday type offers going on. We're doing some special Tag Hub promotions so people can become an elite member of Tag Hub and uh, get like $100 towards blackobus.com. We're going to have other subscription offers after the first 100 of those is gone. And uh, yeah, just pay attention to our marketing efforts, uh, our social media, our emails. If you haven't subscribed to our emails, which are free, just go to our website, eastmans.com and... And you'll be kept in the loop of all the latest and greatest going on from us.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, just a plug for me too. If anybody's listening to this, wants to find out what I'm doing, the easiest way to do that is to go to my website, which is coyotecraze.com. That'll give you links to all the YouTube videos, all my social media accounts um, and everything like that. But uh, as always, hey, want to thank you guys for being on. want to thank everybody for listening. I'm making this in the number one predator hunting podcast out there. Um, like I said before, if you are listening on Spotify, that five-star review goes a long way. If you love what you're listening to, uh, please submit that. And uh, and before we get off here, I just need to thank, of course, Eastman's for putting this all together. Uh, Lucky Duck Predator Calls, Swagger Bipods, Hornady, Onyx Hunt, Cryptek, Six Hour Optics, and Black Rifle Coffee Company. Thanks for all those guys for supporting this podcast. Uh, we couldn't do without them. But until next time, we'll catch you right here on the Eastman's Predator Pros Podcast.